So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here, we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Ahla sahla, and welcome back to Unlimited, where we're continuing the Pi series, looking at what MIT was like in the past few years. I'm here to introduce our co-host, Arin Bahur, who will be continuing the series and introducing our next guest. Ahlan wa sahlan to another episode in our Pi series, a series featuring recent graduates and current MIT students who share with us their MIT journey. Today's guest is none other than the mastermind managing our podcast releases, who I am grateful I get to work with, Omar Abaya. Omar is an MIT alum, class of 2018. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Engineering, followed by an Engineering Master's in the same field in 2019, also from MIT. Omar came to MIT all the way from al Skandaria, Egypt, and is now residing and working in the New York area. Omar, welcome to the podcast. Zayak. Welcome, Arim. How are you? Well, very good. Missing you as always. Omar has the best energy in any room he enters, so I'm sad that we've lost him to the New York area. We miss him in the Boston side of, of the world. <laughs> Our focus today, Omar, will be your experience leading up to MIT and your time there. But before we dive in, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do today? Yeah, sure. Um, currently, I work as a software engineer in a hedge fund. So um, the business is finance, but I'm responsible for the fast delivery of market data between the exchange and the firm. Very cool. We'll circle back to how you got here a little bit later. But for now, let's travel back to meet younger Omar. When and how did you learn about MIT? Well, I developed a passion for programming since middle school. So um, I did some programming competitions and I found that I want to continue my studies uh, in computer science. Then in grade 11, I I learned about the MIT application process. And I, um, I think it, it was a motivation for me to apply to the best computer science institute in the world. So um, I think that was my motivation. But I think um, maybe in retrospect, I can say that the biggest part of my journey was not about computer science. It was about a, a lot more things. A lot more things like what? Well, I think it's what this podcast is all about. The immigration journey really taught me a lot of things. Living independently, living in a new culture was um, was a big learning experience for me. Yeah, I, th- I think we all relate to that. I, I like how you phrase it, that this is a big part of what this podcast is about. We're hearing voices from people who graduated from MIT, some that ended up still in the U.S. like myself, or still in Boston, really very locally like myself, still in the U.S., in New York, and other cities like yourself. And then we've heard from some folks from the, the people on the board that are that have relocated internationally, some back to the Middle East. So the immigration journey really is, is a big theme in this podcast. I think one of the questions that I personally get a lot from prospective students that are looking to apply to MIT and looking to start this journey is, 
how I got to the Institute and, and what I did to, to apply and get in and all of that. And I'm sure you get similar questions as well. So I'd love to hear your story and, and ask you the same question, really. Outside of the required exams, the SATs and the TOEFL and all the stuff that we have to do um, to apply internationally and to apply in the U.S., you have to have good grades, all of that. I think we're all familiar with the minimum requirements, let's say. But what other academic initiatives or extracurricular activities were you a part of before MIT that you think may have helped you carve the path um, for you to be admitted and stand out and, and make your way all the way here? Yeah, sure. I think that's a very common question uh, that I get. I would say that the two most important experiences uh, for me were uh, the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, which is a science fair where high school students from all over the world do research and um, compete. And um, I got an award in the international competition, and I think that helped my application. Also, the International Olympiad for Informatics, which is basically a high school programming contest analogous to the International Math Olympiad. And those two things uh, helped my application a lot. But I can imagine when people ask this question, they're usually very worried. Uh, people always come to me and tell me, like, tell me exactly what extracurriculars you did. Tell me exactly um, what, what your test scores are. What did you write in the application? Tell me the exact recipe so that I just replicate it and get there. And um, I just want to tell everyone, if you're not interested in programming or research or, or your country does not provide that much opportunities, these uh, extracurriculars are neither necessary nor enough to get into MIT. I think the most important thing that I try to show in the application is that I really did my best. I knocked every door. I tried to use every opportunity that I had coming from the Middle East where like uh, really a lot of the opportunities I saw on online, I just couldn't participate. In. So I think that's an important part. And don't get lost in the details. Don't think about the exact recipe to get into MIT. It's all about making your case. And it's all about showing that you're also a well-rounded person. I think that helped me. Also, people write in their application that uh, they're good at math. They eat math. They breathe math. And this kind of does not help you, especially actually does not help you when you are in MIT. Yeah, that's very inspirational. A very good point, Ahmad. I, I really do think it's the whole package, right? It's not one checkbox. It's not one award. You really have to show uh, uh, that you do the best with the resources that you have and that you are hungry to learn and that you are willing to learn. Uh, so I would definitely echo that. I think coming from Palestine, I did not have the same opportunities that our colleagues have here, right? But that doesn't mean that we are any less capable. It just means that we had to be a little bit more creative in what we do and, and how we show that we are well-rounded, as you said. So I, I definitely relate to that. And that is great advice for anybody who's applying to MIT or uh, going, not just MIT, really. I think that's good advice for any college application. And speaking of people who are applying or may have just applied recently to MIT, many brilliant individuals across the world, including the Arab world and the Middle East region, got notifications of their admission, admission to MIT very recently about Two weeks ago, three weeks yeah. ago, maybe when we published this episode on March 14th, Pi Day, an exciting day for, for any MIT prospective student. As, yeah. And as they get ready to embark on this new journey, I'm sure that they will love to hear about your transition. So what was it like coming from Egypt to the U.S.? What were your first impressions, both about the U.S. in general, but also more specifically to MIT? So I guess what I'm trying to ask, was there any level of cultural shock? Can you describe it? How did you deal with it? 
I think that would be very helpful for any new student coming from the Arab world or from anywhere else outside of the U.S. to hear. Yeah, I still remember that as if it was yesterday. It's the international orientation, the first week in the U.S. Everyone's so excited. It's dozens of students from all over the world who are very different than me. But I feel like for some reason, I share a lot with them. We're the first time in Boston, the first time in the U.S. for a lot of them. We're starting college, starting a difficult college. It's a very exciting experience. We're looking at each other's faces, recognizing that some of us are going to be friends for life. It's very exciting. It's a roller coaster. And I remember only then the International Students Office held a lecture titled Culture Shock. And we went there and all of my peers and I were like, no way. That does not apply to us. All the shocks we were receiving were positive shocks. So like, no way. We're happy with what we are. Only got positive vibes. So no, no need to worry about this. I think we were living what we later knew in the same lecture called the honeymoon period, which is the period where <laughs> the excitement of the new experience camouflages the potential challenges you're facing by moving into a new culture. So yeah, I mean, sure enough, a few weeks into MIT, I uh, casually and unintentionally offend people by doing something that was kind of an act of kindness back home. Uh, <laughs> I remember a lot of examples about that and vice versa. Yeah, I think it was a difficult transition, but all these differences come way easier when, um, when you realize what they're all about and when you put names on them and you expect them and you understand, you, you start seeing the world from other people's perspectives and you understand it's about the family values. It's what does independence mean here in the U.S. and in the Middle East? What does um, f- friendship mean? Uh, what, what is the personal space for people? And what is the, the used body language? I think before coming to MIT, I really didn't know what exactly culture means because I was living within a one culture frame. So it's very hard to see a frame if you're living within it. And uh, I think even though um, this culture shock took a toll in, on my life emotionally, I mean, made the first semester at MIT very hard, I think I'm very thankful for it because now I feel like I'm more empathetic to different perspectives and different people across the world and can put myself in other people's shoes for, for a moment at least. I mean, when you're in a new culture, you pick up new habits. Sometimes you don't, but you understand better why you're keeping your own habits or values or, or whatever and why they're more important for you. So it kind of made me more conscious about my choices, I can say. Yeah, but I think it's difficult because um, when you are in a culture shock, you kind of doubt yourself. You're like, everything is good. Like, why am I feeling something's not working? Why do I feel like I'm, I'm not fitting in somehow? Even though like I like everyone around me and they like me, but not everyone can understand uh, the differences between the Middle East and the U.S. and the scope and the extent of these differences. Even even me, like I didn't expect that these differences exist, like the extent of these differences till I moved here. I remember this girl I was talking to about culture shock, and I, I told her like I I feel I feel there's big difference between. living in Egypt and living in Boston, she told me, I feel the exact same culture shock. I told her, oh, how come? I didn't realize that. She told me, yeah, I'm from California. And uh, while California 
and Boston, now I know that they are very different, but I just, um, I would say like, it's more like a culture difference than culture shock. And I mean, I don't blame the girl. She, she wouldn't have known better. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a lot of good points. Like the, we don't realize the differences that are even national, like between East Coast and West Coast. When you're here, you realize there's different subcultures. But of yeah. course, there's a more dramatic and, and radical change when you come from the Middle East to the U.S. Uh, so I think people feel that to different variations. And I think one thing I'm always curious about, do you feel that now there's two versions of Omar, one that's in the U.S. that has adapted to the culture here, but then when you go back to Egypt to visit, you go back to kind of the old Omar and the old habits? Or do you feel that what you learned here has just kind of merged into a, a newer personality that you carry in both places? I would say yes and no. Yes, because I feel like I have to talk to people within their cultural context. I feel like now I can't, I can't post anything on social media because anything I would post would be understood in two different ways. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, in a certain way that I kind of change the way I speak, depending on the audience sometimes. But no, because I feel like even when I go back, as I said, like when you go to a new culture, you, you pick up a, lo- a lot of things and you start to become someone, somewhere in between. You start to learn new things from the new culture. You, you grow into that. I, I, I don't think I'll ever be someone with a single culture. I'll never like totally assimilate or anything. Uh, I think I'll always have those two cultures that I'm proud to have. Yeah, of course. No, I, I think we all relate to that. I think that's very applicable to anybody who's relocated. It doesn't have to be to the US. Like I'm sure, you know, Americans could feel like this if they come to the Middle East too. It goes both ways. Um, and you don't realize it. I think like, I love the analogy that you use that if you're in the frame, you can't really see it. I think that captures the cultural shock uh, spot on. That's such a great analogy. So speaking of all of that and the things that you learned were different Knowing what you know today, is there one thing that you wish you knew before you got to MIT, just one piece of information that would have been helpful to know? I'm sure there's a lot of information that would have been helpful, but what, which one stands out? Okay, now, now remembering the months before I got into MIT, I really wish I knew one thing, and that is that I will get in. I think self-doubt is your biggest enemy. I think everybody gives you advices uh, when you're doing anything really in life. And um, I think a lot of people were not comfortable with the idea of me putting unproportional effort in an unprobable event, if I may say. I, I just wish that I knew that I'm going to get accepted because um, actually I, I applied to MIT twice. And the first time I got rejected and the second time I got accepted. So I really think that when I got rejected the first time, that really freed me. To be able to just, I think, focus on my application without thinking about whether I'm going to get accepted or rejected. Because, I mean, like, uh, what, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? So, you know, rejection is a muscle, can't I? Once you do it, um, once you face rejection, you, you're more ready for more. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I, I actually didn't know that about you, Ahmed. I actually did not know that um, you applied to MIT twice. I think that shows... So you know how we were just talking about MIT looks at the full package and not just you're good at math or you got the score. I think you capture exactly that motivation or that resilience or just that is the full package, right? Like you didn't stop at the first rejection. You were like, nope, I deserve to be there. I can make it. And you try it again. And I think that that is 
just so admirable. Not a lot of people, myself included, would do that. I wouldn't have applied again. So I admire that a lot. And if if anybody listening to us um, is someone who applied to MIT and, and didn't get in this March 14th, Omar's story is a great story to tell you to try again if you can. There's there's chance the second time around. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that with us, Omar. So I'm going to move on a little bit to your journey at MIT. So we talked a bit about before MIT and getting to MIT, but uh, let's talk about the time you were there. How and why did you choose computer engineering? You said that you were coding from a young age, so I, I have a feeling that has something to do with it. But why did you choose that to be your major? Well, that was the plan while applying, and I just went forward to make it true. That's very admirable. So 18-year-old Omar, or even younger than that, middle school Omar knew exactly what he wanted to do. I admire that greatly. Um, and computer engineering was not the only um, let's say, field that you studied at MIT, you've also minored in Middle Eastern studies. What inspired you to pursue that field? So MIT asked students to take eight humanities during their time at MIT. So that averages to one humanity per semester. In the beginning, it was very uncomfortable. For me, uh, that's an unpopular opinion. For me, humanities were more difficult than actual academics because Basically, how to succeed in humanities is different. You need to listen and write with empathy and you need everything is subjective, really. But you need to be within a certain like intellectual level that you're not too radical or too far from truth. You need to use the facts, but then apply opinions on top of them. Uh, problems are more complex, meaning that they are interdependent, like economics depend on politics and they all depend on history. And then COVID-19 happens and all of them get screwed. <laughs> so uh, this kind of mix made it more challenging. And this is why I really discovered that I'm passionate about history, which was my worst subject in middle school. So I started to take Middle Eastern classes and I also thought, okay, I'm taking Middle Eastern classes to understand the Middle East better. But I already understand it good enough. But that's also furthest from truth. I spent 19 years there. But I think I never really give it a thought of how these Arab countries are different from each other. And um, what are the structural elements that keep each country the way it is? People. So I think I, I learned a lot from this. And I would really advise in the Middle East to study the Middle East or humanities and the cultural context that they're living in, along with their scientific field. I mean, they don't have to study it in college. Maybe they can read about it. Because I think you can be a great engineer, a great doctor, but I think if you understand what people feel like and what people want and what businesses are there and what your clients want and uh, how the whole country is moving, then basically can take your, your science field uh, way further. Yeah, absolutely. I think that goes back to the theme of well-roundedness. I think that's something that's coming up again and again in our conversation, which I absolutely um relate to just the the idea of having a well-rounded education includes the humanities and I think one not maybe not very well-known thing about MIT is how many courses we have and how many majors you can have in the humanities and um, that those classes and faculty and all that the the entire that side of MIT is as advanced as the scientific side but I think it's more well known for the engineering and the science that the humanities sometimes get left behind uh, but I also very much enjoyed 
taking a lot of humanities classes, like you did the Middle Eastern studies. I did um, comparative media studies. I also focused on the Middle East. Yeah. So I, I, when you said, you know, the middle people in the Middle East should be studying that part, I think that takes me back to, so I took the media studies and you could focus on anything that you wanted, right? You could focus on video games or on social media. My focus as an Arab was 100% on the news and everything that's happening in the Middle East. And yeah, you gain a different perspective and you get to share your perspective in a classroom that has other voices and, you know, more ears to listen. So um, yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And so that was your undergrad. So there was the computer engineering, there was the uh, Middle Eastern studies, and then you still continued on to your master's immediately after your undergraduate uh, degree, which at MIT, I think we call it Emenj for, for the engineering. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what Emenj is, is and why you chose to continue it right after your undergrad instead of taking some time off first? In my senior year, I did this class about performance engineering. Its number is 6172. This class is basically about making computer programs faster. And it was made in a competitive fashion. So our team took the first place in that class. So I felt like I have a passion for performance engineering. And I wanted to make more latency-sensitive applications or more uh, applications that require really fast performance. So uh, I joined the research with a professor of that class, Professor Julian Chan, and I worked on the research in, in, a same, in the same area. We worked on an open problem and we found a solution for it. We made good progress and uh, it was clear for me that uh, MNG is going to be a good opportunity to build on top of that performance and publish a paper. Um, and that's what I did. So it just made the most sense to continue the same research in the next year. Yeah, and that um, that also speaks to the opportunities on campus as an undergrad. So I think something that's very common uh, for many of us was to do those undergraduate research opportunities while you're taking classes and you can get credits for them. And those are always a great opportunity to get to work with professors. And potentially, like in your case, Omar, that uh, translates into a master's that you can uh, continue to work in that group or with that professor uh, towards your master's, PhD, postdoc, Um so the opportunities really are limitless. Let's uh, think a little bit more um, about what a day a day in the life for Omar looked like besides the the classes and the academics. So if you look back, let's think on, of undergrad. But knowing you and being part of some of the same organizations, I know that you were also involved in campus in a couple of things. So one of the organizations we both worked with, but at different times, was the Arab Student Organization, the ASO. Um, so what motivated you to join? What was your role in that organization? Tell us a little bit more about that. I loved the ASO when I first came to MIT, just to have all the cool events and stuff. There was a, a great board uh, running ASO, and uh, they were running it for a while, and they really knew their stuff. I was connected to the organization since I joined, but then, they all suddenly left, and then I think it was an, a, a moment where where the organization is understaffed. So I, I stepped in, and I was uh, the vice president of that. <laughs> it was time for a new regime, and you mm -hmm. really took the seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I remember one time I represented the ASO uh, in a meeting with the MIT AAA, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to be on the other side of the table next time. <laughs> 
I'm so glad you brought up the MIT AAA, which is the MIT Arab Alum Association that this podcast is part of. So that was going to be one of my next questions. You continue to be involved with the kind of Arab associations at MIT. I know what you do, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what your role is with the AAA today? Yeah, so um, um, currently I'm working on this podcast. Omar, you're being too humble just working on this podcast. Omar is responsible for this podcast getting to you. So if you're listening to this, he managed the release and all the metrics on all the different platforms. He was the one who set it all up. You can't, you can't just let that go, Omar. Thanks for all that you do on it. But sorry, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on this podcast with you, Arin, if you don't know. And then, of course, and Matt Moon. Basically, our, our goal is uh, to get people in the Middle East to see people like them who, who are able to make it to MIT. I think role models are important. It's not like we're, we're showing specifically superstars. It's more like if you want to go to MIT, just because it's thousands of miles away, it doesn't mean you just can't go there. There are people who are like you who went there. It's difficult, but hear what they want to say about it. Yeah, I think this is very important. It's also to tell the stories of how immigration can affect your experience going to challenging school like MIT and how this really changes your life and making this podcast personal, making this podcast about the stories of people because everybody wants to listen to the research of people at MIT, but I think we really hear very little about the human side of things. I feel like this podcast is very meaningful for me, and I hope it gets to become more and more impactful. I'm looking forward to do more things once quarantine fades away and we can connect with people on campus and clubs in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I would agree with that. I think stories are very powerful, and that's what we're hoping to bring. So that's, I guess that's the mission that we've set, set ourselves up for, <laughs> and we really hope that this helps Either people who graduated from MIT reminisce about their days there and people who are starting their journey there or thinking about it can get a sneak peek of what it's like and, and hear the stories of some of us that went through the same experiences. So I, I definitely agree with that, Ahmad. Um, I said at the beginning of the episode that we would come back to what you do today. I feel like we, we took a journey through your MIT life and I wish we had the time for me to ask you more questions, but... I really want to go back to to complete the circle and I would love for you to give us a little bit of, I guess, the story behind how you ended up in finance from a computer engineering background, a lot of work in AI and your master's degree. How did you end up in finance or was it more of a coincidence? Um, I, I had my first internship in finance in junior year summer and that was like just a coincidence. I love the company. Uh, I, I didn't want a finance role per se, and I didn't work in, in the financial part of the company, but I just heard people talking about finances all the time. Uh, and I learned a lot of things about finance and I just started reading on my own. I really like the finance industry when I feel like I'm learning a lot about how the world works. So um, working in finance imposes some kind of constraints. So usually latency sensitive applications, which is basically programs that need to run so quickly are uh, very common in finance. And that's kind of the same area I, I worked in, in in master's. So I think this is why I feel like I just find the interesting engineering problem in finance. Yeah. So it was a natural progression, even though it might not sound like it. It sounds like you were on that path from earlier on. 
Okay, to wrap up this episode, I'd like to take us first to the future, then back to memory lane. Um, I don't know why I chose that order, but that's the order we're going with. Um, so let's take a look, uh, travel a little bit in time. Uh, when you imagine, let's say, your next five years or your next decade, what do you see, if anything? No pressure. <laughs> okay, so I think nothing set of stone, but I'll do whatever helps my personal and career growth and keep me in constant challenge. I think if I learned one thing from my immigration experience, it's to avoid limiting myself by just setting too much expectations too early. And I think so far, I've been changing. I'm definitely changing less quickly than my first year in the US. However, uh, I'm still changing. And um, I think I want to make the best out of this. So I hope that in, in, in five years, I will be in a place I don't expect because then uh, it's probably that I made a conscious decision to be there. So, <laughs> that means you're sticking yeah. <laughs> with your plan of not putting too strict of expectations. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. And the final stop is down memory lane and our closing question for every guest in this series. What do you miss the most about MIT? I miss looking at the dome uh, from the Esplanade across the river, across the Charles River at night uh, when the weather is good. That's and also sitting in Killen Court, which is uh, basically the part in front of the dome uh, at night when like there are few people uh, just looking at the dome and complaining about uh, why, uh, <laughs> why my life's so hard. <laughs> I, <laughs> Well, yeah. hopefully my wish for you, Ahmad, is in the next decade, at some point, you'll sit by uh, Killian Court and instead of complaining about why life is so hard, you can reflect about how well it's going. Um, that's my <laughs> wish for you. And I think that's uh, uh, that's a wrap for uh, today's episode. Thank you so much, Ahmad. It was a pleasure having you. I learned so much about you. Thank um, you even though Thank we've you. chatted so much, I feel like I've learned so much doing this episode. Thanks for yeah me too i learned about you <laughs> yeah so thanks for the inspiration thanks for sharing your story with us we appreciate your time and we appreciate you sharing everything for everyone else stay tuned for our next pie series we'll have more guests that are currently students at mit in their undergrad and in their postgrad so you'll get to uh, get a taste of what life is MIT like in the present moment since Ahmad and I both experienced it a few years ago so we'll give you a more present look so look forward to that and stay tuned thanks everyone thanks Ahmad <laughs>